Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories sold worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome. We're at the Sunbury Press studio at the historic Christian Baker Farm near Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is Brian McKenna, the author of Cops Under Fire, 12 gripping stories of real-life police shootouts and what to make of them. It's published under our Oxford Southern imprint of professional and academic titles. Brian, welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, yeah. We're glad to have you, too. First, I want to thank you for your service. Um, I know you were a longtime police officer, and we greatly appreciate that. Uh, but my, my first question, though, is why a police officer? What brought you into that profession? Well, most people say they wanted to help people, and I guess I did to some extent. But uh, actually, my main reason was because I thought it'd be an exciting, fun job where I could drive fast and get in fights and uh, catch bad guys. So, But then as time went on, I realized how wonderful it is to be someone that other people depend on to help them. Um, and so the, the service aspect of it was really what meant the most to me. Is it something you thought about when you were a kid? You wanted to be that when you grew up, or is it something you came to uh, later on? No. Actually, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and uh, I loved history, still do, and I went away to college thinking that uh, I would probably become a history uh, teacher or maybe a politician, uh, so I took history courses, and one day I was sitting down with my twin brother, and we were talking, and he says, you ever think about what you want to do as a cop? I mean, it, it, when we get out of here, and I said, no, not really, and he said, well, I think it'd be neat, a lot of fun to be a policeman. And that was it. I, it's the only, only thing I could think of. I just, I wanted to be a cop. And uh, just, uh, you get that bug and there's no satisfying it with yeah. that. What, you, what year was that? Works. What year was that? Uh, I don't want to date you too much. Year, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was about 1972, oh, I wow. guess, 1972, 73, I was uh, eight going on nine, listening to uh, Joy to the World by Three Dog Night on the radio <laughs> and running right. around my yard playing wiffle ball. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the job was a lot different then. Yeah. So, you know, going back to those years when I was young in the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, we always respected the police. And fortunately, I didn't run into them very much. Uh, but when we did... You know, you listened to them. The police chief, uh, I think there were two officers, three officers in our township. And Chief Pretzelzelski was uh, the uh, the head of the department. And we called him, everybody called him Pretzels. And, of course, it's a Pennsylvania German community, so everybody ate pretzels. <laughs> but Chief Pretzels was wonderful, and he was great with the youth. And uh, it was always a very positive experience. Even when a kid got in trouble, they always tried to make it a, um, a you know, a learning experience, maybe with the parents or with the community or with, with a group of kids. Sometimes the parents never found out and they just, you know, turn the kids back and say, don't do this again. And uh, 
you know, there's judgment calls that they made. And I think it was very, very healthy. And of course, an idyllic time now, when we look back and think about, that's, that's a long time ago now, 50 years ago or more. Um, you know, and now where I live, and I mentioned Boiling Springs in the opening, we don't even have a police force here. We're a rural community just outside of Harrisburg, and an occasional state trooper will will roll by and maybe stop somewhere to pull over speeders, and uh, and that's about it. So, my life experience with the police is uh, minimal. So, obviously, your expertise far far outweighs mine, and I have a lot to learn this morning. So, a lot of questions for you. Um, you know, the first question um, beyond about you and your service is. The biggest misconceptions about police. What do you think the biggest misconception is today? I think there's really two of them. The first is that we're racist. Uh, police officers are human beings, which means there are people in the business that are racist to one one, one extent or another. Um, don't know who all of them are, uh, but systemic racism is definitely not part of policing at all. Um, and, uh, the other one is the fact that uh, uh, that we're trigger happy and that we get in gunfights all the time between the two departments that uh, that I worked for in 33 years. I guess I worked with probably close to 100 different police officers or more, uh, and uh, there was only I think three or four times that our officers even fired a shot at anyone, um, and I certainly never did. Right. Uh, so. Um, and cops, the other thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that, uh, you know, we'll do anything we can to avoid shooting somebody. Uh, for example, there's, uh, by law, a police officer is not required, except under some circumstances, they're generally not required to give a verbal warning before they shoot. Um, and uh, But cops do that all the time, often to their own detriment. They close themselves to danger. Uh, by just repeatedly ordering people to put guns down and things like that, which is really dangerous. Uh, but uh, we just don't want to shoot anybody unless we really have to. Yeah. Well, you just described, uh, you know, so many years in service and maybe that excitement you were seeking in your youth, it it really, uh, it wasn't a day-to-day thing. Probably, thank God, because it would have been <laughs> quite stressful, I would think. Um, oh, yeah. It sounds like a lot of police work is uh, maybe kind of quiet. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, Sheriff Taylor on Mayberry, it isn't such a bad representation of uh, most of the time it's peaceful and quiet and you're just, you know, patrolling or, uh, you know, you're in the community. Well, that, that's it. I mean, you're talking to people, you're, you're taking reports, uh, a lot of report writing. Everything you do is uh, requires a report. Um, and a lot of, a lot of boredom, uh, but, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, minor things, thankfully, uh, but there are times, and, and one of the problems with being a police officer, I think, is that we become complacent because we don't have, uh, we're not constantly getting in altercations. And so when they happen, they come, kind of come as a surprise. And a lot of officers aren't really totally prepared for that. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of what I'm getting to in a roundabout way. You know, your book about cops under fire, if you watch television, you watch the news, you watch a movie, you know, you watch the uh, Law and Order and a lot of these other shows, 
you would think that police are always under fire, that it's a daily, it's almost like a war out there, that everybody's armed to the teeth and shooting at the police or shooting at each other. And, and in reality, it sounds like it's a rare occurrence that a particular police officer might run into this situation. And when you do, it's an oh my God moment. Like, <laughs> may, I mean, how well trained are these individuals for that moment? I know some of them are ex-military and so on, but... Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I do now since I retired is I train police officers and how to prepare for those kind of things and to stay calm and to be able to make good decisions and that sort of a thing. But unfortunately, in the environment today, uh, a lot of your politicians and, and leaders don't really want that kind of training anymore for their officers. Uh, they call it warrior training and they think that it makes us trigger happy, uh, and, uh, but, but it doesn't, but, but in any event, yeah. And there's a lot of ways to prepare. And that's one of the things I do in the book is, is I, I talk about what cops, how they're trained and, and what they know about being prepared for something like that. Um, so that the reader can say, Hey, uh, you know, maybe I can take some tips from these cops and, uh, learn something because all, everyone has challenges in their lives. Every, everybody comes into, dangerous situations occasionally and and if we can use these incidents these tragic incidents that officers are involved in uh to learn something uh that the average joe can use to make his life better um you know that's that's kind of an extra gift that our officers are giving people to uh and that's really one of the primary reasons again that i wrote the book We've been talking to Brian McKenna, the author of Cops Under Fire, 12 gripping stories of real-life police shootouts and what to make of them. We'll be right back in a minute. If you are enjoying this podcast, check out our other programs on the BookSpeak Network, including the Brown Posey Press Show, Milford House Mysteries, and the Sunbury Press Book Show, and History Through Biography. Welcome back. We're talking to Brian McKenna, the author of Cops Under Fire. Brian, uh, we were talking about how prepared are police officers, especially when we consider how rare or, in, or unusual it is for an officer to need to, to draw their weapon. And there is a recent incident in the news. I know it's not in the book, but I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, the officer who thought she was pulling her taser and she pulled her handgun and uh, accidentally killed a young man, I guess, in the back of a cruiser. Right. Uh, I don't know what you know about that situation, but, um, you know, obviously a very intense moment. The officer thought they were doing one thing. They actually did another. There was clearly no intent to kill, I don't think, um, although the media initially really uh, ran with, you know, a lead in, along that line. But what do, you, what do you know about that situation that you could share? If, and if not, I apologize for bringing it up, but I'm just no, curious. I, I, I know quite a bit about it. Um, uh, the uh, that's actually what happened to her. I think is a product of her training to some extent, but uh, uh, it, it's actually a, a thing that happens uh, with all people under some circumstances, especially stress. I have a good friend that's a, a pilot, a commercial pilot. Uh, and, and he says they train to avoid that kind of a mistake. It's called a slip and capture. Uh, it's kind of a complex process, but essentially what that means is that 
especially under stress, uh, that you can be meaning to do one thing. Uh, but if it's something that you haven't trained on much, uh, then you're more likely to go with what your training has really taught you as far as to the point that it's muscle memory. So, for example, in this case, uh, police officers train with their firearms all the time. Yeah. And for obviously good reasons, because we have to, uh, you know, if we have to shoot when we do it, it has, we have to be fast, we have to be accurate, and we have to make the right choice. So we train our officers in that, uh, and that's sort of the go-to thing when things get really, really bad. Uh, that it's the ultimate thing you can do to protect yourself. So she thought she was drawing her taser, but drew her pistol instead. Um, and then apparently that went on for a certain amount of time. Uh, and then she decided that it, she had to, because she believed that this guy was going to harm another police officer. Uh, apparently the woman that was in the car, they thought she may have been the uh, subject of some kind of a, a kidnapping or something. And he was wanted for a, uh, a, a felony a weapons charge. Um, so uh, she, she just, when when she decided she was going to engage, use the use the taser, uh, she she shot the, the firearm instead because it was in her hand. And uh, you know, it's a tragedy, a uh, terrible thing to happen. I mean, we don't want anybody to to be killed. Yeah. Um, but but um, it, it truly was an accident. I, I'm convinced of that. And apparently, the judge. Uh, in that case, recognized that too, and I got that from some of her her uh, comments afterwards that I read about uh, what the what the judge herself said. Basically, yeah. she said it was an accident. Now you you're um, bringing up a point. You know, uh, I wanted to dig into just a little bit. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like she had her gun drawn for a while and thought it was her taser. I, my impression was right. that she it was. She was under duress. She felt threatened. She thought she was drawing her taser at that moment and fired almost immediately, accidentally. Oh, was it the other way around that she just thought she had the taser in her hand for a, for a much longer period, maybe many seconds or minutes? It, it, it could. I mean, that's kind of the way I read it. Of course, yeah. you know, you don't get all the fact. I, the, the media, you know, does that mistake sometimes. But that's the way it sounded to me. And even if it wasn't, even if she drew it immediately. Uh, it's a very complex subject, and, and I don't think you, we necessarily want to get into that too much, but it, it, it can happen, and it does happen. Yeah. Uh, like I said, it happens to pilots, it happens to doctors, um, it happens to any kind of people that are working under stress. That, that does happen sometimes. Hers was a rather extreme case of it. I still believe that she had no intent to kill that, that gentleman or even to shoot him. It yeah. just wasn't there. Oh, and her, um, rea- her reaction was... You you could tell right. immediately, uh, right? She she was but, devastated. You know, that's hard to convince people uh, of the kind of thing, and I think it also brings into something that you know uh, you mentioned earlier is, is what are the biggest misconceptions. I think the other great misconception, and again a very damaging one, is that cops are well trained. They're not. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, in some areas they are. Uh, and it also depends on the department, uh, even the uh, state laws regarding the amount of training cops need. Uh, but uh, for, I, I mean, I, 
that's why I went into training because I went to the academy and I thought I'd come out well equipped to be a cop and I was sorely disappointed and training's better now than it was back then but it's still for what's expected of police officers for the circumstances under which they they operate uh, the amount of stress involved uh, uh, the training sucks (laughs) (laughs) puts it mildly so I guess there's different paths to becoming a police officer, and you, you have mm-hmm. people that go through the MP experience in the military. You have people that go mm-hmm. to, uh, a, like, a state police academy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I guess you have police that come into more of a local situation. I don't know what the training is there. Right. But uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about, is there a difference in, in uh, paths that people come into this work, and maybe some are better prepared than others, perhaps for the stress? Well, yeah. I, well, I think I think military uh, experience is is really important. Uh, but uh, you know, we come in in for you know a very variety of different ways and a variety of of, of different uh, goals. Um, but um, uh, and again, I think uh, military training helps. Uh, of course, being a cop isn't the same as being military, so. There, there can be certain issues that come up about that because, for example, uh, a, a person in the military just does what he's told. But cops have to make independent, split-second decisions. Uh, and that's one of the things we need to train them in. Um, so, uh, and, and uh, I, I don't know if you want me to talk a little more about, about the shortcomings in the training. Sure. Uh, Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. Um, what... what we're just now, over the last 10 or 15 years, I guess, uh, starting to realize uh, the limitations of the way we've trained officers for so long. Uh, anytime you train someone to do something that they have to do under stress, you have to train them under stress. You can't just lecture them or, uh, you know, have them uh, write a term paper about it. I mean, that just doesn't do the trick. You actually have to put them in high stress, as close as you can to what it's going to be on the street, and then you have to uh, properly uh, set up your goals, uh, your objectives, uh, and see how how well the officer fulfills those. And then you have to be very careful about how you uh, critique the officer afterwards. There's certain things you can do that that make it a more positive experience for the for the for the officer. But all that costs a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, it's very labor-intensive, uh, instructor-intensive. You have to have safety officers on the scene. Uh, it's kind of a slow process because it takes a while to do these scenarios and things like that. But that's really the only way to give officers that kind of training. And, for example, a lot of police agencies, even today, uh, all they do is qualify. In other words, you go to a range, you have a static target, certain distance away from you, they blow, blow a whistle, you draw and fire a certain number of shots. And yeah, some of them, many of them just qualify once or twice a year, which means that the officer goes, he has a static target sitting in front of him uh, or standing there in front of him. Uh, when, he, when they blow a whistle, he has to draw the gun and fire a certain number of rounds um, to the target uh, in, a, in a rather generous amount of time. Uh, 
and score up to 70% or maybe might be 80 or even 90% um, and then move back to another distance and do it all over again. Uh, it uh, really what uh, qualification does is it shows that the officer can shoot straight enough to meet the minimal qualifications that the state imposes on police officers for that skill. And <clears throat> so it's really not training. It's just, just uh, really kind of covering your rear end uh, to make sure that you can say, well, my officers are trained up to the state standard. Yeah. And, and, and it's that with a lot of other things. And, and I think one of the areas where police officers really need a lot more training <clears throat> is in what we call defensive tactics, the unarmed stuff, or use of tasers and things. That, that training is minimal. Uh, and it, uh, it really it doesn't prepare the officers or what happens out on the street. We're talking to Brian McKenna, the author of Cops Under Fire, <laughs> 12 gripping stories of real-life police shootouts and what to make of them. We'll be right back. Listen for the Brown Posey Press podcast, available here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Tori Gates, and my guests include fellow authors on our fiction imprint, but also other independent and self-published writers, poets, movers, and shakers in the literary world. Listen for current and previous shows here. The BookSpeak Network brings the story behind the stories and their creators here. All right, we're back talking to Brian McKenna here on the Sunbury Press Book Show. He's the author of Cops Under Fire. So, Brian, I'm going to take you back a bit. Uh, in our okay. conversation earlier where we were talking about politicians and you had mentioned that maybe politicians aren't supporting the n- what's necessary for police training these days. And right. I'm also hearing in the media, and again, you know, I'm, I'm a neophyte at this, but I, I hear at the, the, the talk about, you know, let's do more social work, less police work. How does that jive with your experience? I, I know a lot of the police work is sort of mundane, but I guess when uh, the trouble starts uh, I don't know that social works the answer what what do you think well I, I think that well first of all especially with experience uh, police officers are pretty good uh, with people skills uh, contrary again to the image maybe that's projected of them but uh, you learn uh, you learn how to how to convince people to do things that you want them to do rather than force them um, and so, uh, and, and you do learn, I mean, I've, I've seen cops talk people out of committing suicide, uh, with no, no formal training on it at all. Having said that, and other things, having said that, I, I think it's great to get more human relations training, things like de-escalation. But the problem with that is that one of the big reasons why cops don't get more training is money. And training costs money. Uh, and if you're putting your training into that, you're having to take it from somewhere else. And when it takes it from uh, uh, officer safety things, uh, training in uh, uh, you know defensive tactics skills, firearms drills, and stuff like that, uh, that uh, that you know you, you you have to take it from somewhere. And so. Uh, really, the, the only way to answer the, the problem is to bring a lot more money to law enforcement. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that usually, and that may be changing some now, but usually the first thing that's cut from a police officer's or a police department's training budget is training. That's where they scale back the most. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so, you know, it, it makes kind of a vicious cycle. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, we just we do need a whole lot more training, and where the money comes from, I don't know. I, so, another question. It might yeah. might be a yeah. difficult one, but um, I'm always curious about the Second Amendment and. The police are in our nation where we have a Second Amendment and a lot of gun ownership and a lot of illegal guns. You know, what's the typical policeman's stance on the Second Amendment? Are they generally supportive of it? Do you think they're against it because it puts their lives at risk in some cases? Well, you know, you'll hear a lot of a lot of police administrators talk out against it. But your average road cop uh, really right up, you know, through even the lower ranks up through lieutenant and captain. Uh, the vast majority of police officers are pro-Second Amendment simply because they know that in the real world, we seldom get there in, in, before the shooting's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in, a, in an active shooter situation, uh, it's usually three to six minutes before anybody even calls the police. And then it's another three to six minutes before the police officers arrive on scene to locate the suspect. And so uh, an active shooter can do an awful lot of damage in that amount of time. And even if somebody's breaking in your home or something and it turns violent, uh, even if the cops can get there within a minute or two, uh, a violent suspect uh, can do an awful lot of damage in just a minute or two. So we understand that. We also understand that, uh, that uh, if you take guns away from the citizens, the the bad guys are still going to be able to get them. Uh, So they'll be armed, but you're, lawful citizens or not. Yeah, you, you hear some government. occasional stories of the good guy with the gun being at the right place at the right time. Right. I think there was a church shooting not too long ago uh, where that was the case and many lives were saved, but unfortunately yeah. it doesn't happen enough. Yeah I, yeah, I read about one just, I think, a day or two ago uh, where a guy shot a police officer and he was on the run and broke into somebody's house and I think attacked the man and the man shot and killed him. Um, and uh, so, uh, and, and also, if you think about it, uh, uh, you know, America would be a pretty dangerous place to try to invade, Yeah, like Ukraine, okay? Because yeah. we've got, what do they say, like 40 million guns in, in this country, um, and, uh, and, and, and we're seeing that in Ukraine right now, that these people are able to resist the, the Russians, um, and I pray that they'll be able to to actually win this thing, yeah. um, uh, because they're they're armed. Yeah, I've said that to several people I've talked to in the last yeah. few days about how, whether you like the Second Amendment or not, uh, you can use Ukraine. Just look at Ukraine as an example of what the Founding Fathers meant it to be. Right. And, right. you know, God bless them. I hope there's peace uh, right. there soon and that Ukraine maintains its independence but you know you see them right. handing out rifles and you're right in this country you wouldn't have to hand out the rifles people would be just dis- no. trying to decide which one to use <laughs> right. in some yeah. cases right. so, so uh, I did want to ask you about hand- about guns in general though and the there you know we had misconceptions about the police I know there's a lot of misconceptions about guns in your uh-huh. police work and what you've encountered the typical gun that's used in crime the you know, is it is it everybody's showing up with an AR-15 and, and shooting everybody up, or is there some other MO that's typical? Well, it, it depends on who you're dealing with. Gang, member, gang members, a lot of times, have rather sophisticated weapons. Um, 
and it does happen. But your your average murder is committed with a handgun, um, and usually uh, not a particularly good one. Um, a lot of Saturday night specials type type things, um, and uh, or they're 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 murdered with knives or something else. But I would say the gun violence is ninety percent or more handguns. Yeah, so I guess why is there so much in the media about uh, assault rifles and and all that? Do you think it's the the rare occasional active shooter situations that occur where they actually are used? Or uh, it sounds like that's a pretty rare, in in all the police work that you've seen, a pretty rare incident, or no? Yeah, I I, I think that it is. Well, there's a couple things. One is that, uh, that type of weapon is scary looking and it does look like a military weapon and that it, you know, it's a little more scary than a, than a gun, than a handgun. Uh, and the other thing is, is that when they are used, it, it's usually in a, uh, like in a mass shooting or, and it's also, I think they pay more attention to it in the media. Um, so, so I think that's it. But if you look at the numbers, it's handguns that do the most damage. Yeah. The other misconception is uh, a lot of these rifles are fully automatic. And uh, right. I've had to explain to people that, oh, no, no, semi-automatic, as as a lot of the pistols right. are. Sounds like a lot of the pistols you're talking about are handguns that are used in in crimes might be revolvers. Uh, could be revolvers. They could be, you know, they're semi-automatics, not, not necessarily a, a large caliber. Uh, it, it, so, uh, I, I mean, it, they use all kinds. Um, but, uh, but, but a fully automatic weapon, and a lot of people don't understand the difference. A semi-automatic weapon, you pull the trigger once and you get one shot. Uh, you pull it again, you get another shot. It's fully automatic is what most people call a machine gun. You hold it down and got, you know, just one shot right after another as long as you hold the, the trigger down. Those are rare. I mean, people can get them, but they're very, very expensive. Yeah, um, don't you have to have a special license for that? Right, a special license, and, and they're expensive even with the license. Um, so uh, Yeah, I thought they kind of went out with Al Capone and Elliot Ness. Right, you know, right. One other question about, about the guns, and then, you know, so the other angle is how were they obtained? There's so much today about background checks and gun show loopholes and all that. And your police work, yeah. the, the weapons mm-hmm. that are used in crimes, are they generally legally obtained? Uh, you know, they're in the no. possession of the owner, and they had a. They went and got them properly, or no. they were stolen, or what? Yeah, I usually use the example. Can you imagine a bunch of uh, gangbangers that are going to go out and do a drive-by shooting, and they got all these all these guns, and they start piling a car. And one of the guys says, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! We can't do this because uh, these guns aren't registered yet. We got to go down and register them first. I mean, give me a break. These people steal them. They buy them from people that stole them." They get them on black market. They, they're, they're most most guns are not used. Uh, you know, the criminals use are are not legally owned. Right. Uh, and I mean, you know, the, there are exceptions, but the majority are not. So it's probably a misconception that the current gun uh, registration laws, or I should say, purchasing laws, are inadequate. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I do think that, you know, I, I mean, uh, 
the, one of the big issues, and I don't even know the answer to it, is is people with mental problems. Because most people yeah. that are mentally ill are not dangerous. But you know how much what the law should say about allowing a person. Because just, I mean, let's say for example, maybe somebody got depressed once and they went into the hospital. Does that mean that they shouldn't be able to allow allowed to have a gun? I, 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 I'm not a I'm not a psychiatrist, so mm-hmm. I can't say. But other than that. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, these laws need to be that restrictive. And and that's, the, you might be surprised to hear that coming from a cop because we're the ones that have to face guns out on the street. Yeah. More often than others. But most cops recognize that if you just enforce the laws that we have already on the books, and if you would uh, give more severe penalties and, you know, and actually prosecute properly, that that, that that's going to be do do more to stop gun crime than writing new laws. Yeah. So we I know we just have a few minutes to go. I, I yeah. wanted to ask you just a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. One, uh, and this is a fascinating topic for me. I'm really learning a lot today about misconceptions. Um, you know, one of the the sad things, the, one of the saddest things you you see on the news any given day is the the wounding or the death of an officer. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like there's too many of them, but uh, in your experience, how many officers are are wounded or or killed in in service each year? Well, actually, and that, that's interesting because uh, over the years, the number of officers that are being killed actually has dropped uh, because of body armor, better weapons, and better training. I mean, the training's a lot better than what what I had 40 years ago, um, and, uh, and also better medicine. You know, we, we, a modern ambulance now actually brings an emergency room to the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with all those things, we're losing less, fewer officers than we did back in the 70s um, and even the 80s or 90s. But, uh, but there's still too many that die. And, uh, and recently, uh, as a lot of people predicted, uh, like the last year, the, the, the number of officers killed, uh, uh, especially with firearms or by violent, rather than by violence rather than, than accident or illness, uh, did go up considerably. Um, and I think I think last year it was about forty, maybe fifty. Um, some years uh, in the not you know during this century, uh, some years we had as few as maybe 27 or 28 officers. And there again, I'm talking about cops that are murdered. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then there's the accidents and there's the illnesses and all those things too that contribute. Because I think it's been well over 100 altogether for just about every, every year in the past. Yeah, well, one is too many. Um, well, Brian, what else are you working on? What are you doing these days? Are you writing anything else? Uh, I understand you're, well, you're also doing training. Yeah, I, I do training. Um, I'm trying to. I'm starting to scale back a little bit. Um, I want to spend a little more time with family, and and uh, uh, my wife is now retired, and, and we'd like to do some traveling and things. But I'm sticking with study uh, with the uh, training police. I'm also starting to get involved in training uh, citizens uh, because I think that uh, they have every right to carry a gun, but I think that they should be properly trained if they're going to do that for their for their good uh, as well as other people 
you know, because uh, if you don't understand the law, for example, uh, you can get yourself jammed up pretty easily. So uh, I'm doing that, and I'm still trying to. I'm thinking about doing another another uh, book like this one, uh, maybe, or and I'd really like to do something where I could uh, collect up um, essays uh, from other officers on the effects that all this has had on them personally. But I'm having a hard time finding contributors. Mm. Uh, but that's that's the one thing I really want to do. Well, we would certainly support that. It, it, you're the contrib- yeah. The difficulty is that because people are being a little bashful about it, they're afraid to speak out, or I, I don't know. I, I think you know a lot of them are busy. A lot of them are, uh, you know, for me, it's, and I've done that several times to contribute to to a book that another person writes. Yeah, you you know, like that it excites me. I love to do that, but some people just don't like to write. <laughs> Right. And and uh, and cops do a lot of writing. They get kind of tired of it after a while. I I, I wrote a million pages when I was a police officer. You write for everything. I, I don't know. And and maybe I need to push them a little harder. But I really like to do that. I think because you know we kind of hinted at that earlier. Is that you know how do we deal with this problem? Well, that's again why I wrote the book. I I think understanding, educating the public, letting them know you know correct some of these misunderstandings. Uh, I want to get the word out there. And, and we have to also remember that still the vast majority of Americans do respect the police. They support the police. Yes. It's the squeaky wheels that get all the attention. Uh, but I'd still like to do something like that. I think, I think people would like to read that. How did that personally affect you? I agree. And Brian, yeah. we are out of time. It's been great having okay. you on. Okay. Look, to, look well, forward to having you back. Great- I'd love to, and I had a great time. All right. We've been talking to Brian McKenna, the author of Cops Under Fire, 12 Gripping Stories of Real-Life Police Shootouts and What to Make of Them, released under our Oxford Southern imprint. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.